Neil is in the backdrop. In the UK, five-hour difference, tough to, um, to coordinate, and we did it. Neil, I can see you. I'm bringing you in right now. Everybody, the man of the hour, Neil Oliver. Neil, how are you doing? Uh, it's lovely to see you. I'm doing fine. I was just enjoying uh, listening to all of that, and I'm, I'm delighted, as you say, that we've been able to uh, hook up, and I'm looking forward to a free-flowing, no-holds-barred conversation. It's a, dig, a digital hookup, an intellectual hookup. Neil, okay, so I, I, look, I, I like to delve into people's childhoods, for the, but before we even get there, for those who don't know who you are, I think I've given the 30,000-foot overview, but give us the elevator pitch, and then we're diving into your childhood. As you say, I, uh, I, I began really in my adult career as an archaeologist. I studied at Glasgow University. I worked as a freelance excavator for a few years, uh, struggling uh, to make it financially viable, I jumped ship and retrained as a journalist. I worked in newspapers, qualified as a journalist, uh, worked in uh, local weekly papers in a, a couple of places around Scotland. Um, I then worked, believe it or not, I was uh, the, an internet webmaster uh, for BT.com, which is the third website that was ever built in Britain in the mid-90s. So I had a, a history with early internet then I stumbled into television, uh, making archaeological documentaries, historical documentaries. Uh, and there I was for a happy couple of decades, really, uh, making quite light, cheerful, uh, I think, interesting documentaries about the, about the past. And then all of, this, all of this started to unfold, lockdown, COVID, and the rest of the nonsense. Uh, I found myself with a platform. First of all, I was being interviewed weekly on a, on a top radio station here in the UK, uh, then I was approached by a, a fledgling TV channel called GB News, uh, who signed me up from the beginning. And I do a weekly show on GB News, uh, where I've, again, I've had the great good fortune to be able to vent spleen and, and give my opinion about what's going on and to talk to people from across the spectrum about, about all that's going on. I consider myself to be, I'm not a specialist. Uh, I'm, I'm not a politician. I've never been a card-carrying member of a political party. Uh, I, tr I treat politics and politicians with deep scepticism and suspicion. I'm just a reasonable person, I think, uh, insisting on being able to ask reasonable questions and get factual answers back. Uh, and uh, until the last breath in my body, I will continue so to do. Fantastic. Well, okay, we're, and we're going to flesh out probably all of those visual chapters of what you just said. Uh, but uh, born and raised, where, where are you born and raised? You're, Sc you're Scottish, but I know you've, I've seen a few interviews. You yeah. consider British. I'm, I'm Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was born in uh, a town called Renfrew, which is on the other side of the River Clyde from Glasgow, uh, which maybe makes it easier for people to visualise in Scotland. Mostly grew up down in the southwest in a place called Dumfries, near the English border. Uh, I've lived most of my life uh, in Scotland. I have work has taken me all over, all over the UK and, and all over the world. You're right, I, can, I consider myself to be, and it was never a political thing, I consider myself to be British. Uh, when I was a kid, if you were on holiday in Europe or, or whatever, someone asked you where you were from, I was likely just to say I'm from Britain or that I was British. Uh, and then if people asked more specific questions, as you just did, I would say where I was born, which is Scotland. But for me, uh, I, I always felt being part of the bigger family uh, of the of the countries of the British Isles was was much more interesting, much more fun, and I continued to be. I, I came to some prominence in 2014 when the, the there was a referendum about Scottish independence, 
Uh, for me, it was never about Scottish independence, but that's a whole other story. Uh, I don't think that's really what was on offer. It, nonetheless, I spoke up and said that I thought it was a better idea to remain part of the United Kingdom of Great Britain. And that that threw me into a bit of a spotlight. But uh, until until the end, I will consider myself to be a British Scot. And I didn't mean it in a, in a political sense or a judgmental sense. I, I was listening to a few interviews and trying to analogize it to life in Quebec, where if you're a French-Canadian, French-Quebecer, and you don't support the separation of Quebec, sometimes people tend to view you as, uh, you know, kissing the butt of the, of the English or not yeah. being a true Frenchman. And so I imagine it's, it's a similar sort of... Um, very cultural- much so. It, it's, it's, very, it's very much like that. It's, it's for those that are, that are uh, uh, blood and soil nationalists who want secession, uh, anything short of uh, shouting from the battlements about independence is, is high treason. There's no middle ground. Uh, if you're not if you're not in that camp, then you're the enemy. And and a Scot, a born Scot, who prefers the union, is is the worst of all worlds for the for the blood and soil nationalists. That that carries a charge of treason with it by by definition. Uh, and it, so it's very it's always been very difficult since 2014 to articulate a position of being uh, of loving Scotland while simultaneously loving England. Uh, Ireland and Wales, and and I know uh, you know Ireland, North and South. There's the Republic, and then there's the, there's the there's the North, which is which is part of the United Kingdom. Uh, but I love the island of Ireland, uh, uh, North and South. Uh, and I, I, for me, I've always the, the analogy I've I've tried to, to use to express my feeling is that for me, having been born and raised, feeling part of Britain, to to have that all cut away. I think I would feel like you know one of these you know old soldiers that you know sixty years after they lose a limb you know they're still scratching, you know for that phantom missing leg. I think that's how I would feel if I was suddenly cut off from my sense of belonging to the to the bigger place. It's fascinating. I mean, it's fascinating. I, I was whenever I have a guest, I try to look for scandals, and and this was the most scandalous thing I found on you was the controversy uh, because I, I I thought you had a Scottish accent and I. You know, we don't fully appreciate the nuance, the, the Northern Ireland, Southern Ireland issue, Scotland, England thing. Um, but now if I sort of I can imagine it's totally analogous and understand why it might have been controversial at the time mm-hmm. to be one of the French Canadians saying we should stay part of Canada, to be one of the born Scots saying we should remain part of the UK. Uh, mm-hmm. but, and we might get back to that in, in, in a bit. Um, childhood. I was trying to find things out, and I, I don't know. I, I, you know Ask how many, me anything you like. Well, I, I just want to take a guess. Were you an only child? No, I've got two big sisters uh, who who both still live in Scotland. Uh, m- m- uh, my mum is still alive. I lost my dad. My dad died a couple of years ago now, uh, and uh, I had a you know very a very typical I would say a working class uh, Scottish British childhood. You know, grew up my my dad my dad uh, worked. My mum worked part time sometimes. I uh, I went to state school, you know, just an ordinary schools. Uh, I had a very normal, happy childhood, uh, 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 unremarkable. I would I would have said it in most ways, the kind of uh, childhood that you know, sixty seventy percent of people born and raised in Scotland in the in the sixties and seventies would would recognise and identify with. Uh, you know, you know, just a, a, a happy, regular childhood. I was the I was the only member of my family, or the only one of my siblings, to go to university. I, I, if you were to ask me why, I don't really know why. 
uh, it's just the way things worked out. And so I went off to uh, Glasgow University and, and decided to study archaeology, as I, as I mentioned at the top of the at the top of the show. Um, but un, unremarkable. Uh, you know, that's just I, I think I'm a, I'm a typical Scot, a typical working class Brit. And um, if I may ask, did your dad pass away during COVID or, or, or before? Well, nearly two years ago now. So just as it was just, uh, you know, just as the whole thing was starting to take shape, my, my dad had been, uh, he'd been ill for, he'd been ill for a while. You know, he, he, he died of, of cancer, uh, but, and he, he had been, he had been ill and diagnosed for, for quite a long time, but he hung on in there for, for, for quite a while. And, and the, the end, the end came r- relatively, relatively quickly, I, I suppose. Uh, so no, he didn't. I mean, we, my mum was up visiting with me. Just uh, she was up seeing me and the family yesterday from down home in Dumfries, and uh, you know she was saying, "I wonder what your dad would have made of all of this the, these last two years." My dad, in some respects, I wish he was still here, but you know he, he you know he he hasn't had to come through this uh, the the COVID uh, paranoia, the you know the the lockdowns, the 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 uh, the the death, the dereliction of duty on the part of the ruling class, the you know the the, the gross uh, uh, removal of of basic rights, right to travel, freedoms, coercion around uh, around vaccines and, and the rest of it, and the the economic hit, you know, the the Dumfries, the town of Dumfries that we moved into, gosh, how long ago now? Forty odd years ago, fifty years ago, is completely changed now. It's been hit very badly economically. Uh, and it's 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 been very very badly hit in the aftermath of the cost of lockdown crisis. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, you know I, I think about him every day, but in, in some respects, you know, I, I do think I'm, I'm glad he's not seeing this. Did, did um, if I may ask, did, were you able to uh, mourn properly, like have a proper funeral? Well, we we did have a we did have a funeral. I was able to attend his funeral with with my mum uh, and one of my sisters and uh, and my wife uh, Trudy and our kids came down. We went down to, to Dumfries for it. It was very low key though. Uh, we, we, nobody else at the at the, at the service. Um, but but to be honest, uh, my mum and dad were very uh, private people. You know, it would have been it would have been uncharacteristic for them to do anything. You know, large scale or or ostentatious. They've never there hasn't been that element to to their characters throughout my life. So it was a very quiet, intimate uh, goodbye. Uh, and now, childhood, say unspectacular or just you know relatively normal. But what what does a what does a childhood in Dumfries look like? <laughs> is, it, is it countryside running around, or is it? It's sort a, of- Dumfries is a would characterize itself traditionally as a market town. It's in the in the southwest of of Scotland, as I say, about twenty odd miles, nearly thirty miles from the English border. It's set in soft uh, rural landscape, uh, gentle rolling hills and woodland and rivers, uh, and and for the longest time, the the people there made their living from the you know from farming. And Dumfries was a principal town, you know, sitting at a nexus of roads, and traditionally it was where people would have brought animals. You know, for for sale and trade, and and so it was that kind. It was a market town that we moved into in the early nineteen seventies as a as a family, and uh, a population then as now of I suppose around thirty thousand people. Maybe I don't know actually. I haven't looked at the figures for Dumfries for a lot of years. That kind of scale though, uh, 
a, a few a few primary schools, a few high schools. Uh, there was a little bit of industry, uh, but all of that's all of the industry's gone now. Uh, Dumfries has been very badly hit by you know it's, it, at, at the moment you would say it's a place of uh, low paid employment where there is employment. There's a little bit of tourism because of the the scenery, the local scenery. Uh, but there's no industry anymore, uh, and the and the, the the farming market, uh, market town aspect of it has also diminished in in recent years. So it, it's become something of a backwater, I would say. It was bypassed by a major road. There was a, a major trunk road motorway put into, rather than passing through the town, it it it, it left it in a kind of an oxbow lake, kind of a you know left uh, left uh, as a backwater. Uh, but it was a lovely, it was a, a happy childhood. I, I was I, I did perfectly well at school. I was never a, I was probably in the top half of any given class, uh, but unremarkable. I wasn't ever interested. I certainly didn't excel at any kind of sport. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I lived a life below the radar really for most of my life. I, when I, I became a I became an archaeologist and so on, and I worked in newspapers. When I stumbled into television, and it literally was accidental, I, I just was, uh, I think, as many people who who find themselves making documentary television, I, I was in the right place at the right time to get a tap on the shoulder to, to see if I would, it was initially a television series about battlefield archaeology, uh, which, which came out of the fact that with a friend, uh, we had set up an excavation for, uh, at the battlefield of Isandalwana in KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa. Uh, people who've seen the film Zulu, uh, Michael Caine, Stanley Baker, uh, that 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 war between the between the between Victoria's red-coated soldiers and the Zulu nation uh, had been a fascination for myself and a friend, and we set up a project in the late nineties, early two thousands to go out and excavate the battlefield, and it attracted the attention of of television, and so I was in my early thirties, my very I was I was about thirty thirty one. When suddenly I was on television, and suddenly exposed to that kind of you know p- people looking at me, and it was certainly never anything that I had intended. I, n- I never sought the spotlight, and so what has happened to me in the last few years of becoming increasingly controversial, I suppose, notorious even, and being characterised as all sorts of right wing tin hat wearing swivel eyed lunatic extremist, has been a very well, unexpected, certainly, but also undeniably uncomfortable experience because it's, it's not anything I ever set out to do. It, it is. I mean, look, I, the first thing is wa- watching your demeanor and now knowing your, your childhood. I was like, there, there are certain people you say, if they were any different in real life, I would be shocked. And looking at your demeanor, say it's not something someone can, can do by accident or by practice. It just has to be innate. And it, you know, it, it now fits in what you describe as your childhood and your, your reaction to, you know, I, I've seen the way you're characterized. In fact, when people started sending me their, you know, your, the first clips that I saw of you, I, I saw the context in which you were being described. And I was like, oh, I, I knew how media worked. I was like, oh, another one of these. And now I, I know so much better. But um, so actually, just that, you studied archaeology in university? Mm-hmm. Glasgow University, yes. Did you uh, and did you always have an interest in in history and the world? Yeah, I, at school, if I had a, my my best subjects, I suppose would be would be English and history. I I, I love. I was. But my mum and dad uh, were big readers. The house was full of books, 
you know, novels, so fiction and non-fiction. And, you know, so there was a lot of books, there were a lot of books around. So I, I read, uh, so English was a natural fit for me. I loved, uh, I loved storytelling. I loved writing stories. I loved reading stories. I loved language. Uh, I love the cadences and rhythms of, of the spoken word and the written word. Uh, all, history, and I was drawn to history because it's, to me, I think it's really storytelling of the sort that will go back to a time beyond the reach of memory. I would have thought when people were sat around the campfires of of the you know of the hunting world tens of thousands of years ago, effectively what they would have been telling each other and spinning stories about would be some kind of history. They'd be telling the story of the family, the story of the tribe, which it, by any other name would be history of a sort. And and so it was the storytelling that that always attracted me to history. You very kindly introduced me as a historian. I can't claim to be a historian because I don't have a I don't have a degree. I don't have any academic qualification in history. I am an archaeologist, but I'm a I'm a lover of history. I'm an enthusiast about it. Uh, and, and when I when I got the chance to go to university, uh, when I realised that my exam passes were you know were going to let me do that, I, I latched on to archaeology because it seemed to me an opportunity to get back to the story of humankind from as close as I was going to get to page one. I've always been interested personally in where my family came from. I learned very early on that my that both of my grandfathers had had fought in and survived the First World War. And my mum's my, my dad died long before I was born, but he carried wounds from, from Gallipoli until the end of his life. And my dad's dad was at the Somme and Passchendaele, and he was wounded and carried shrapnel in his arm and, and behind one ear. So I was from a from a very young age. I was very aware of the fact that that both of these men had taken part in something as enormous as as planet changing as as the Great War, and that that fed and led into a fascination with me about how what what the rest of my family's story was, how we fitted in, you know, why did we live in Dumfries, you know, what had brought that bit of my family to there when my grandparents lived in Glasgow. Uh, you know, all of that just uh, piqued my curiosity, and so that that was what pulled me into being interested in history and archaeology. Seemed to me the way to uh, to get back to the beginning because it also occurred to me, you know, very early on that, like everybody else, I must have uh, I must have ancestors who saw the Romans, you know, ancestors who were who were there with the first farmers and people building stone circles, and the great burial. Tombs, and I also must have ancestors who were amongst the hunter-gatherers that 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 walked dry shod into what became the British Isles fifteen thousand years ago. I thought I'm connected to all of those stories, and and archaeology seemed to me the way, the path leading as as far back as I could hopefully get, as close as I was going to get to a time machine to, you know, to to find out more about where my my people had come from. And I can honestly say, you know, when I when I began studying archaeology, it, it was it was like one of those moments in the cartoons, you know, where the where the love hearts, pink and the rainbow and everything appears above, you know, the above, you know, the, the focus of your adoration. I just loved it. I just loved everything about archaeology. I loved the stories. I loved the fact that we spent the summers away from university on digs, taking part in excavations, actually physically finding things, touching things from thousands of years ago. I just loved it. And, you know, at that time in my life, my early 20s, I thought I was going to spend my life as an archaeologist. 
but financially it was just an, <laughs> it was a non-starter. I woke up one morning, I had been excavating a bit of Roman road uh, in the winter. Digging in the winter is a lot different than digging in the summer. And I woke up one morning, I was probably about, I don't know, it was my, my late 20s, no, my mid-20s, and I thought, one day I'm going to be 40 and I'm going to be arthritic from working in the cold and the rain and I'm never going to be able to afford to buy a house. And it was it was with that realisation that I, I I jumped ship, as I say, and I, I got the opportunity to join a weekly newspaper and and retrain, retrain as a journalist because because I thought, well, it's got writing, it's all, it's all about writing and journalism is digging. The, the same curiosity that makes me wonder what people were doing 10,000 years ago makes me curious about why people did what they did yesterday. So that, that, that archaeology and journalism are, are, are both driven by nosiness. I'm nosy about and curious about and fascinated by what people do and why, and where they do it and what are the consequences. And so journalism seemed a fairly logical opportunity step for me. I, and, I, I'm just saying, I, I, I love, <laughs> you put into words what people can only, in retrospect, appreciate were emotions in their mind. The idea of digging in journalism is no different than digging in the ground for archaeological finds to understand the past and the present. Um, yeah, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just nosy. There's, there's a, there's a, there's an undeniable magic though about archaeology that's meant that archaeology has always. I drifted in and out of it. You know, it was like a first love uh, that I became, from which I became, from whom I became estranged, and then almost as though the universe was determined that we meet again. And and so I, I, I circled all the way back round to, to making television programmes about archaeology. It was as though I couldn't escape the the, the, the gravitational pull of it. And, and it is all down to the, you know, to the to the magic of uh of being able to, you know, if you're if you're if you're on an excavation and you find, say, the remains of a campfire, and you can find the remains of a campfire from 10,000 years ago, but charcoal, uh, uh, fire cracked stones, and and so you can and you can find that in the landscape somewhere, and you know with absolute certainty what people were doing when they were looking at it. You know when they were there, it was a fire, and they were warming themselves or or or, or keeping wild animals at bay, or they were cooking or or whatever. But you know what they were doing, and you know also in your head that you're you're separated from them by say whatever 5000 years 10000 years but that 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 diaphanous separation seems very slight because you you know you've got that human connection because we like fire they used fire you've got that that direct connection to them you know and you and you put your hand down on things that they touched and i find that a profoundly moving uh experience i always have and and as i talk about certain things it always puts the hairs up on the back of my neck because I find that ability that archaeology provides to reach back as much as you can and touch things from distant past is is profound. What we're going to do now, it's a good it's a good time because the next question is going to be a whole new subject. Everyone, let's move it over to Rumble because we're going to dive into the, you know, the how how Neil became. Um, <laughs> a, a boogeyman of sorts just by digging just by asking uh and i got a bunch of questions to get there so everybody we're going to wind it up on uh youtube 
move over to Rumble and I'll give everyone 30 seconds to do it right now. Three, two, one. And as everyone trickles in, I, I've got some questions for you, Neil, uh, from, from, from YouTube, but I'll get to that in a second. Uh, the question is this, just to contextualize uh, in, in, the, in, in the framework of your life, when did you get married? When did you have kids so that we can appreciate how old they were as this COVID thing was going on? Oh, well, that's a good story. I met my, I met my wife uh, when, uh, at university. I, I, we met when I was 19 and she was 17. I was in, I was in third year at university. She was in uh, first year. And uh, we were together for a long time and then we were apart for quite a long time. A bit like I, a bit like I parted from archaeology. <laughs> I also parted from Trudy for a while and then we, we came back together again uh, Really, around the same time I got reunited with archaeology, I came, we, Trudy and I came back together. We sort cycled, circled back around to one another. Um, my, but in answer to your question, uh, we got, we met, Trudy and I met on the 10th of October, 1986, and we got married on the 10th of October, 2009. Um, so we got married me, on, the, on the same date. Let me just ask you one question. Why on earth do you remember the exact day and date? Was it because of the anniversary or did something occur on that date on which you met? Yeah, it did. When, yeah, it's, it's one of those moments that I think is a central, uh, essential moment in my uh, existence in the universe. We, I was the, on the day in question, it was um, what we called orientation week, or you think other people call it freshers week or whatever. It was the, it was the week just right at the start of the, of the first term when all the clubs and societies lay out stalls in a big hall and new students are invited to come in and maybe join whatever, you know, the hockey club or the rugby club or the archaeology society. You know, all the, everybody's there in the one room. And I was there. I was there with a group of friends. I was the president of the Archaeology Society, heaven help us all. And one of my friends uh, on the day, Dorothy, had one of those throwaway cameras. You know, they be, the, I don't know if you, you still get them. Oh, yeah, with the, yeah, like the cardboard Kodak things. Yeah. And you click yeah, and you put, them in the, you put them in the chemist, the pharmacist, and you get the pictures. Back. So she was clicking away with us, just taking shots. And Anyway, I, um, I looked around because like, you kept keep your eye on the door for new people coming in. And I looked around and I saw this girl come in and uh, I just just knew she was the girl for me. And I kind of, I, I, which was unlikely for me, I made a, a, a ran, <laughs> I got up from the desk and ran around <laughs> uh, to, to, to get to her as quickly as possible. And I got her to, you know, sign up and join the Archaeology Society. And yeah, it, it, that was how we met. And a couple of weeks later, I was in a lecture and Dorothy came in. And she'd got the pictures, the photographs back from the uh, from the day. And we were just looking through. She was sitting beside me. We were just going through them and she was looking at them. And there was this picture and it was me at, at the desk. Uh, and I was just kind of looking, beginning to, I was looking up at Dot, Dorothy. And in the back behind me, over my shoulder, like right here where my hand is now, was Trudy's face in the picture, which meant that, Dorothy had accidentally captured the, the last second before I actually turned around and saw her. We were actually in the same photograph before we met. And when we when we got married, um, all those years later, by which time we had the three kids, we got married in 09. And uh, 
my my daughter by then, Evie would, what age was she in 09? She must have been, she was about seven, seven. And my boys were sort of five and, or four and three, like four and two. And I got the picture, I got the photograph blown up to be like, you know, you know, four foot by three foot. So that the people, when I made my when I made my groom's speech, I could I could tell the story of the fact that you know this was the moment. This was the this was one of the last seconds before we met, and I think possibly uniquely on the, on in the population, we have this moment captured accidentally on film, and it's just one of those. It's just one of those. Moments, I think you know that was us kind of entering each other's orbits, <laughs> and Dorothy happened to drop the shutter on it. That you still have the picture, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. And so, did, did, uh, did not to pride. So, you had kids before getting married. Yeah, we did. Yeah, we had um, uh, Evie is uh, as I say. Yeah, we had we had all three kids by the time we got married. I don't know. Okay. We didn't. Don't, I don't yeah, know. About, no, no. If, if that if that became a question, I don't know. It was just it was just. I can tell you though that having three kids that age at a wedding complicates matters enormously. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine three kids under ten is is complicated in general, <laughs> let, let alone at events. Um, yeah. So so your kids are older now, so the yep. the, the impact of COVID or, or living through COVID would be different with them. Uh, uh, Jamie Lee McFadden said, "What was it, the hardest part of your switching profession? So you go from archaeology into journalism, but I presume now you get into journalism." When you get into it, the pay is probably not much better, but the prospect is better. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, back in, when I jumped, when I jumped into 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 journalism, yeah, there was there wasn't much, there was no financial incentive to do it. That's for sure. Uh, I just thought this will lead to, you know, this would this will lead to another kind of career, uh, and I I I just liked the thought of the flexibility of it. You know, I thought if you become a journalist, you can work anywhere. It, it's one of those. Uh, it's like you're very. It's like being a. I don't know. It's like be, being able to pull a pint, or or being able to be a hairdresser, or be able to be a plumber. If, if, there are certain things that if you pick up the ability, you can do it here. You can do it there. Because so I thought if I'm a journalist, it, it, it's something that translates, uh, and I, I would be well anywhere in the English speaking world. I thought I could, I could potentially take that, but the incentive was not was not financial. Uh, but. So, and so, so you, you get into journalism, and you're what type of journalism? Because I guess, oh, how does it segue yeah, well, into documentary well, filmmaking? Gosh, yeah. Well, it, it was it was it was where I lived. It was down where I had gone to school. It was back then in Dumfriesshire, and I joined. It was a little group of three privately owned uh, weekly papers: uh, the Annandale Herald, the Annandale Observer, and the Dumfries Courier were the three titles, and we worked. We we we, we rotated between the three. Um, and it was in the it was in a uh, in, in in the rural environment, so a, a lot of it was to do with you know going to um, you know agricultural shows, you know uh, going to you know uh, horse riding events and covering those, uh, you know the, the kind of the kind of lives that unfold for people who work in you know in in farming, you know in small towns, small town life, uh, attending local council meetings, parish council meetings, going to the local court. You know, covering whatever people up for you know driving offences and whatever petty crimes and writing those stories up. Those are the kind of stories that people love to read about their neighbours who've got into trouble with the, with the forces of law and order. Uh, so just this, the just the cut and thrust of of everyday life. This everyone probably at some point in their life must have come across a weekly paper, 
and weekly papers, they tend traditionally, they're dying out now because of tech. But in back then, they, they were very fondly regarded. People liked to see them because they would see photographs of their, of their neighbours and people they were at school with would be, oh, there's so-and-so's got married and, you know, there's so-and-so whatever up in court for speeding. And people are very affectionate towards the local paper. Um, and it, it teaches you a lot of things. It, it taught me shorthand and typing for a start, the two greatest skills I've ever picked up and have done more for me over the years than uh, being able to touch types, been more used to me than my degree or my driving license over the years. Um, it teaches you how to approach people, ask questions, often about sensitive subjects. You're trying to get people to talk about things that perhaps they don't really want to discuss. Uh, so it, it teaches you uh, how to approach people, handle people, get information from people, even if they don't maybe necessarily start out wanting to part with that information. Uh, it makes you become quick at, at picking up the, the 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 necessary to write a story about something. You know, you've got to be you know you've got to be you've got to be fairly uh, uh, quick at becoming a, a temporary expert on something. You know, one day you're writing about um, you know a court case. Uh, about fraud, and then the next case, the next day you're uh, you're uh, you know a, a Highland show, you know, t talking to owners about their you know their prize-winning cattle. You, you've got to you know you've got to jump between disconnected, disparate subjects and become expert in them. And I, and I, I think being training as a local newspaper reporter was a fantastic education. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't have my life would not have unfolded as it did. My my degree was one thing, but the time I spent as a journalist. I think really gave me the the, the skills that, that then made all the difference when I accidentally stumbled into television. And so stumbling into television and then I guess stumbling into political controversy over the Scottish debate, uh, how did that happen? And then what happens after, you know, 2014 to 2020? Well, believe it or believe it not, that once I put my head above the parapet about about the union and Scottish independence, the the gunfire never stopped. I, once you once you single yourself out as a target for that, because the, the 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 call for independence in Scotland has never gone away. It has, although there was a referendum that was supposed to settle the matter for a generation. Immediately after the referendum came in, uh, those those uh, wanting independence just redoubled their efforts. So it never quietened down. And so I was continually then being approached and reapproached to, to reiterate my reasons for uh, maintaining the union. So I remained in the spotlight in that way at the same time that I was still making uh, documentary television. So I was, I was making all sorts of uh, quite soft documentary television, but at, at the same time I had this sideline running where I was being asked to comment about the latest stage in the and the redoubled efforts to secure a second referendum. Uh, but then, the well, as, as it was for planet Earth as a whole, COVID-19 just appeared out of a clear blue sky. Like everybody else, I, I watched the, the strange, bizarre footage coming out of China, coming out of Wuhan about this, this new virus that they said they had discovered that was making people fall face first onto the pavement in the street. And, and then... Then it was in then it was in Europe in, into Italy and then people started to panic that it was spreading like wildfire. Well, you know, I mean, we all we all know the story. Uh, but then when when lockdown came and initially, I suppose for the first couple of weeks, my wife and I because we didn't know what it was. What is this COVID nineteen? What what we're we talking about here? What we're we dealing with? Is it dangerous? I really don't know. 
uh, neither of us was involved in any way in the medical profession. We weren't immunologists or virologists. It was all, God, what's this? But after a few weeks, because we're self-employed, you know, we're, I'm, I'm always been a self-employed person and I couldn't work. I had been, I had just come off the back of, I had been, I had, as a sideline, I had been touring one of my books. You mentioned I'm an author. I had been doing a kind of a one-man show. I'd been going around theatres up and down the country, talking for a couple of hours a night in front of an audience about, it was called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places. And I had made it into a, a two-hour show that I could talk the, I could talk the audience through the, the story of Britain uh, in relation to 100 locations around the UK. Uh, and it was really good. It was really good fun. And it was, it was good business for us. And of course, amongst everything else, COVID shut the theatres. I had been going to do another, I'd been going to do another tour. And suddenly it was like, well, all the theatres are shut. And so my wife and I, we kind of looked at each other and thought, well, that's that's pretty significant. Because it, it cut off a whole you know line of, of work for us. And, and and so we started to we started to look at the lockdown in a completely different way and thought, how, how long is this going to go on? And really how dangerous is COVID? We were starting to ask each other those those questions. And it was around that time, I was already on uh, social media. And I think I must have, I can't honestly remember, but I must have put out a few comments and remarks on Twitter or, or, or wherever. And I was approached by a, a radio journalist who hosted a, a morning show five days a week talking about the events of the day. And he he contacted me and said, would I come on and talk to him this particular Wednesday morning about lockdown and freedom of speech and because I was already becoming aware that people asking questions about the vaccines and the, not the vaccines at that point, but asking questions about lockdown were being vilified. Um, and it, and and also, obviously, our freedom of movement was being severely curtailed, to put it mildly. And I, so I went on and had this initial uh, half hour show with 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 Mike Graham, was the, the journalist in question, and it, it, it gathered a bit of an audience, and so it became a weekly event. Uh, Mike would, Mike and I would have a, a conversation just like this. Just uh, you know, we would spend half an hour chewing over the events of of the week, um, and I gained I, I, again. I started to gain this sort of notoriety because I was speaking out about you know asking questions about lockdown, about the rights and wrongs of what was going on, and there were other things going on at the same time. You know, it was things like the the BLM, the Black Lives Matter movement, was in full swing at, at, earlier on. Statues were getting pulled down in Britain. And other 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 um, uh, you know aspects of of British history were being challenged on that basis, and I was being outspoken about that as well. So before I knew where I was, I suddenly was a controversial character for the second time. And, uh, I, and it, it, yeah, I imagine I imagine the the first one never goes away, and then with with Brexit, that that debate gets brought up again. But I, I, I let's I, I we want to talk about stuff and not uh, that's what that's one of your Irish wolfhounds. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I can't. There's nothing I can do about that. You've got dogs that size, and they want to bark. You've just got to let it happen. Oh yeah. Um, so, so, so you start like you have all the training now. First of all, you've you've dabbled in controversy that's never gone away. You have uh, not just half a functional brain, but a very functional brain. You start asking the questions that maybe a lot of other people have, but don't ask because too scared. Uh, don't want to be the nail that's sticking up. I remember like one of the anecdotes. I forget who it was. It was a celebrity who said. What are we doing this for? You know, protect the old people or the, uh, someone who just died from COVID was old anyhow. And she got lambasted, virtually canceled. At mm. the same time, you, you talk about BLM. At the same time, other mass gatherings were somehow, you know, finding a justification. 
Um, yes. So you do the you do the weekly show, and it was not I had not seen it, but uh, it, did it become a thing between the two of you, or did it did it come to an end? It was a th- it was a, it was radio. It was radio, but you know nowadays with radio they have cameras in the studio, so you know the, you know so there was a, a visual aspect to it. But it was it was it was a radio show. It was very much like this, uh, you know you know conducted over one of these platforms, um, and it, it lasted. I don't know. I think Mike and I were doing this weekly uh, oh, for several months. But then GB News, this TV channel, came out of nowhere in in Britain, and I was approached, you know, because because, because of my exposure on on uh, on talk radio, uh, I suppose I was just someone that had a, a face that had come to the surface as, as being quite frankly one of the few people who was speaking out, and and was running some of the counter narrative. You know, ninety percent of the mainstream media were just banging the drum for lockdown, banging the drum for. You know, there was a narrative, almost as though it came in a laminated card that they were all just reading from the same script, which I was very suspicious about as well. Everyone seemed to be using the same words at the same time, you know, as though there was a mailing list for some kind of script that I wasn't seeing. Uh, and and so I was I was running this. I was part of this counter narrative. And so GB News asked if I wanted to to get on board, and they offered me this. I do, I do a Saturday night show, where amongst other things, I, I talk about in a monologue about the, the affairs of the day, and and sometimes some of those monologues, you know, attract quite a bit of attention because again, I'm, I'm I am saying things that that that, are, that a lot of people want to hear, but not a lot of people have been prepared to say, and and that aspect of it, I couldn't understand that. I couldn't understand why people wouldn't just tell the truth. And none of this thing about my truth, just the truth. The truth is a thing. Everybody knows it. Everybody can tell the difference between right and wrong, good and bad. You might follow, that doesn't necessarily dictate what path you follow, but everybody knows the difference between right and wrong, true and false. There's the truth. And I, I couldn't understand why people weren't just standing up and speaking the truth, because there were there were inconsistencies about the way in which, as you say, certain certain protests were absolutely cool, and the and the police would would run alongside dancing the macarena, and other other protests on the same streets about another subject, you know, would bring down the cudgels and the and the horses and the and the you know, and the pepper spray. And I thought well, there's no there's no consistency about this, and I was. I was then and have remained deeply troubled about the hypocrisy, the, the inconsistency, the lying, uh, the, the deliberate propagandizing, the nudging, the, the psyops, the, the, the imposition of fear, the determination to put people on edge and keep them on edge, to frighten people and keep them frightened. And as more and more time went on, I thought there's a profound and it's immoral I thought what is being done is immoral. And I had gone through 50 odd years of my life uh, understanding the world one way. And it, it, it was as though for the first time I saw the world differently. Now, you know, it's, that's, that experience has been described, obviously, many times recently as waking up. And well, and maybe that is what happened to me. Maybe after, maybe after 52 years of you know, sleep and beauty, <laughs> I woke up. And looked at the world differently, and and but having as everyone says, once you see it, once you see what you understand is wrong, you can't stop seeing it. It's like those, 
you remember those magic eye 3D pictures that were very popular for a while? That at first glance, it was just a random pattern. But then if you kind of squinted a bit, you made this three-dimensional image step forward. And once it was there, you couldn't make it go away. It was, oh, there's the sports car or the stag. It's been like that. For me, I looked at the world, the, the old familiar world, and the truth just stepped forward for me in 3D. And once I saw it, I couldn't not see it. And I thought, why won't anybody else describe the truth? It's right there in front of us. And that, that's just what I ended up doing, not out of any desire to be a contrarian or, or, to, or to make a name for myself. I just thought, I'm not having that. Well, the, um, and I guess actually one question before is you're working in journalism in, in a small town. You get exposed, I imagine, to local corruption, local wrongdoing. When you start delving into this and you start, the, the image pops out and it's never going back in. I mean, is there a part of, of your soul that despairs because it's what you're, what you're seeing and understanding is corruption at a larger scale beyond anything you've ever experienced or could have conceived? In your life experience. Oh, absolutely, 100%. It has, it has never stopped. It, it feels, and, and this, is, this, is, this is where anyone who's, who's following this path, you know, that, that you're on and I'm on and lots of other people are on. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's asking the question again. Oh, no, it, it is seeing corruption on, on a scale yeah. and breadth. Of, of a level yes, of evil. Yes, no, I, I, I started out being very concerned about what was happening in the context of COVID. But once once I saw that, as I say, it, it, everything else just seemed to become visible to me to the extent that I thought, why have I, how have I managed to overlook all of this for so long? And now I just seem to see everywhere that kind of this inherent uh, uh, corruption uh, around all of the institutions. You know, I see it in academia. I see it in the judiciary, I see it in the police, I see it in the National Health Service, I certainly see it in the government, I see it in the political class, I see it in the mainstream media. I just feel as if there's been, you know, there's there's been a, a concerted attempt out there to dupe, uh, you know, um, the population, as many of the population as possible. And I understand why people are duped, because I was too for the longest time. But I think with, with COVID, it unlocked something. I think with COVID, there, there was then an attempt by, by, you know, by by those with a with a wish to establish greater authoritarian, almost totalitarian control over their fellow human beings. I think COVID seemed to present an opportunity. I, I mean, it was it was widely reported that that it was it was the, the the those contemplating lockdown didn't really think that the British people would accept it, but then lo and behold, the British people did the same way every other population did and i think that was that was uh that was uh, red meat to the wolves uh red rag to a bull i think the the those with a view to taking control of people and keeping control of people uh felt that now was the time and 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 a whole i think a, a, an agenda a whole a whole set of ideas that was that was simmering and and, and on and had been on the back burner was suddenly was suddenly brought forward uh, and, and I, I think the, I think that that attempt has gone too far, too fast. And I think that's partly what, why so many people are waking up in the same way and are paying attention to things that that, that hitherto they might have overlooked. I think I think actually that those with a view to 
seizing and, and maintaining control uh, have shot themselves in the foot. Uh, now, when you say, and I have the same experience and uh, the same check and balances, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And once you see it, you see it everywhere, including in places where it might not actually be. The mm. question, you know, I think we, those with uh, the degree of reflection, such as yourself, you go through this journey. How do you keep yourself in check throughout this journey to not get carried off by your own imaginings? And also those which are not imaginings have not just get think, something by despair. You're right. I think there's a, I think there's a, a, a bit of a process. You know how they, uh, they say that there's a kind of a five-stage process around grief? Mm-hmm. And now that I've embarked upon that sentence, I can't for the life of me remember what the five stages are. But there's like denial and then there's there's anger and then there's you know there's and, uh, I'm, I'm i'm flashing back yeah. to the episode of the simpsons when homer eats the fugu it was it was definitely denial anger sadness <laughs> acceptance and then there's yeah. one more there there's a process there's a process that you go through and as you say it's, it's um once you get jolted i i've described it before i felt as if there was a a, a little bit of reptilian brain you know, right primitive in my amygdala or something that had been dormant for all of my life. But subject to this particular fight or flight assault, it flicked. And I felt it for the first, and I thought, I'm having a physiological response to threat here for the first time in my life. I've never felt frightened of the state before, but but I'm going to pay attention to it because it, it's real. It's a, it's a genuine response and then I, th- I think you you become you're right. I think part one of the phases that we all go through is you then become almost paranoid. You think, what else should I be aware of? I've, I, you, then you come through that, and I think it has it has settled down for me into a kind of a a, a, a kind of a, a reasoned scepticism. I now find that whatever I'm being told, I I just want to question it. And that doesn't necessarily mean that in every case I will find it to, I will conclude that I'm being lied to. I just, where before I would just have waved everything through. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Oh, if the government's saying that, it must be okay because, you know, it's the government and they've got our best interests at heart. I now question everything. It's just a, it's just a, a, a skepticism and, and a determination to check it for myself. I think I was probably, you know, when you on, on websites, you know, where it says, you know, will you accept the terms and conditions? And you're in such a hurry to get to the next stage that you just kind of click yes, because you just want the you just want the website to open up. I would have been like that about life. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Click OK. I don't do that anymore. I, 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 in life, I've become metaphorically, I insist on reading the terms and conditions. And some sometimes everything looks all right. Other times I think, no, no, that's that's. That doesn't write. That requires further research, and I think I won't do that at the moment until I've had time to think more about that. I've just so I've got, I went through the awakening. Oh, everything! Everyone's out to get me. Paranoia, and then I've, I've leveled. I've settled down into this feeling that all of us have an, an obligation—not just a right, but an obligation—to be skeptical about authority. Just, just keep an eye on them. Uh, so I think some people would like to keep more than <laughs> more than an eye on them. But setting setting that aside, the um, here's the thing: your, your demeanor is very soft, calm, and soothing and reassuring to people. Uh, this might be my own projection, but uh, is there a part of you that actually despairs? Where you say we, we've we've gone through this awakening, a lot of us in real time together. Once upon a time, 
I would have I would have said the government would never lie about WMDs cause a quarter of a million casualties, civilian casualties, simply for regime change, financial interests. I now that I, now I look back and say, well, I was an idiot. And in real time, we're living through an era where people are saying the government would not lie about medicines, increase deaths by however much. But when you know that they've done it, you know, within the last two decades, and you appreciate there's nothing too dark, too sinister, and you view the world through those lenses, do you in your soul of souls despair at the state of the world and at the future? I have to, my honest answer has to be yes. I, I do, I do go, I do have a lot of, I do spend a lot of time despairing uh, and I, I feel desolate a, a lot of the time because as I mentioned, I, I do feel as if I'm grieving for, if not the world as it was before, the world as I understood it, you, you know, because, you know, we, we've all got a, a personal take on, on reality what we're you know what we're making of the world in front of us and so I'm, I'm grieving for for the world as I previously understood it but and and I wish it hadn't happened in some respects but you know there's that line about you know in uh in much wisdom is much sorrow uh you know there, there's no denying that the more you know and the more you understand uh it, it's not necessarily going to bring you uh, unrestricted joy and happiness. The, you know, often, often the more you understand, the less you can forgive. And I think I've I've come. I've, I've it's been a process. It's been a process of of, of coming through. But I, I would have to say, alongside the despair and and the sometimes feelings of desolation and and the wondering about what's going to happen to the world and what it will mean for my children. If you were to say to me, do I wish I, I hadn't woken up? I would say, oh, oh no, I absolutely want to be where I am now. Because, and this is a this is a big uh, collateral benefit. The people uh, I've met and the and the paths that I have crossed, you know, the encounters that I've had with people who otherwise I would never have met you and I wouldn't be talking now. I would never have, it just, just wouldn't have happened. Our paths would not have crossed. And I've had many encounters in the past couple of years with people who I would never have spoken to, whose, whose points of view I would never have experienced, whose wisdom I wouldn't have shared. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't be without that for the world. I have I have met an, an, a most unexpected but genuinely wonderful and inspiring cast of characters, all sorts of disparate personalities, people from what would have previously been characterised as the left and the right and the centre, people from all sorts of walks of life that my life of before would not have brought me into contact. And my experience and my perspectives on life have been so enriched that although my, my understanding and my and my sudden realization that there's so much wrong with the world and that there is corruption out there and that we are nudged and and taken advantage of and, and sometimes treated with contempt by those that are supposed to be looking out for our best interests, I would far rather be where I am now 
uh, with the connections that I have established in the last couple of years than to go back to my, you know, than to go back to my time of before. I, I keep comparing it to the matrix and just, you know, chewing on, on a steak that you know is fake, but it tastes good in the moment. I, I mean, by the way, okay, well, here's, a, here's the, another question. You're soft-spoken. You are very um, intelligent, eloquent, which might make you harder to demonize and which might make you think that nobody would want to demonize you. I mean, what does it feel like when, and you're not, I don't think you're speaking your truth. I think you're speaking the truth and asking questions in order to arrive at the truth. Normal uh, uh, intellectual exercises of, of being a, a thinking being. What does it feel like when people try to come and destroy what, what makes you who you are, not just for yourself, but to others? Like, how does that feel? And how has that shaped the way you view the world now? Well, I mean, I think the first time it happens, and, and for me, it was a long time ago now, the, the first time I was, I was vilified in that way uh, was around the Scottish referendum in 2014. So that's like eight years ago now. And uh, regularly since then, I've been a target for, you know, whatever, hate and ridicule and, you know, the, the, the name calling that, that, that arrives at all of us, you know, that you're, you're just derided as being stupid, uh, you know, an idiot, um, a mad person, uh, you know, you've lost your mind. You know, the, I, see this, I see the same brickbats being swung at everyone that puts their head above the parapet to ask a question. And, and, and so the first time it happens, it's, it hurts. A bit like the first time you get a punch in the face. But you, but then once the shock of it wears off, the next blow doesn't hurt quite as much because at least you know that it's not going to kill you. And by now, I've I've had so many, I've had so much, you know, you know, ridicule and all the rest of it that I, you never you never quite get used to it. But I see it for what it is, and I, and I also have to say, which matters by more by orders of magnitude, the amount of support that I get, that I have had, especially over the last couple of years, is humbling to the point where it makes me cry salty tears at times. And I am not a person who cries, but I get letters from all over the world. I don't know if you've been aware of that. People started writing to me a couple of years ago. A letter came addressed to Neil Oliver, a guy off the telly, it lives near Stirling Castle. Um, and it came, the, post, the postman delivered it to my house and I took a photograph of it and I put it on social media to show that this had come to me. It wasn't my, it was no address. It was just the guy off the telly, uh, you know, lives near Stirling Castle. And from then on, I have now received thousands of letters and cards from every continent, all addressed to things like the guy with the beard, uh, the coast guy, uh, the history guy, uh, you know, uh, the guy with the wolfhounds, and they, and they all come. And inside are these letters that are heartbreaking, uplifting, inspiring. People saying, you know, uh, I, I thought I was the only one. Uh, I thought I was going mad. Uh, you know, you've been such a comfort. And I've received thousands of letters like that. So the same the same uh, sequence of events that has that exposes you, me, all of us to abuse has also opened a different channel where I've had the, the kind of support that I, I, I cannot adequately describe uh, the, the, the emotion 
and the sincerity that's in thousands of letters. I've got them in baskets all over the house. And, and how can you not, how can you not, being in receipt of even just one letter like that, far less, thousands, how can you not think, well, if I'm helping, if what I'm saying resonates with even just one person, it's worth doing it. And, and the fact that you get this this reassurance or confirmation that, I mean, in the in the last week I've had a letter I've had a letter from Canada, a couple of letters from Canada. I get a lot of letters from Canada, uh, Singapore, uh, USA, uh, uh, France, all over Britain, and, and it's all variations on people saying I really needed to hear this because I thought this was this is what I think, and for the longest time I thought it was only me that thought it, so I must be mad. But when I when I heard when I heard you speak and I realised that you thought it too. I thought, no, I'm going to be all right. And you think that's that is so worthwhile. And you call me names if you want. Call me mad, you know. Call me a right wing extremist if you want. But, but, but I know that there that there are people out there, reasonable, ordinary people, fam, parents, youngsters, you know, rich and poor, of faith and atheist, of every creed and colour, writing to say. That it, it, it mattered to them, and you think, well, that's worth it. I'll take it. A, a married man with three kids and two dogs is a right wing extremist these days. The um, what, what were your, if I can ask, the biggest, the, the most shocking things, revelations you've come to in the context of COVID? I mean, I, I imagine you can. Well, I think I, I was, I was always suspicious about the. I was suspicious from the very beginning with how quickly the vaccines came forward. Because I knew enough to know that, you know, vaccines take a decade, you know, always have. And that this one seemed to be already in the top drawer, just ready to, I thought, how, that can't be, what is that? And so when they started inviting people to come forward and get it, my, my wife and I just said, well, at the beginning, we just said, well, let's just wait. That's real quick. I don't know about that at all. Uh, and so we didn't, and we know I haven't, haven't, haven't taken the, the vaccine, and um, and but then the coercion started, and you know, you know, it was everything. I mean, people were losing their jobs, people were, you know, being, you know, being, uh, were being ostracised by family and friends. Th then they started offering people hamburgers and you know, and and flights and all sorts of nonsense to take it. There was a there was a brothel in Austria that was offering offering people an hour with a, the woman of your choice if you come and get the vaccine. And you think, how can people look on at this and not realise that something is so out of whack, it, it, it defies description. And and that and the, the a government, my, my, my government and, and the health service and medical professionals would, would stand in line to take part in that kind of coercion was was shattering to me. I could not believe what I was seeing because there wasn't anyone, it was not possible to say to anyone that they had the long-term data to show that these procedures were safe, far less effective. There was no way that anyone could, could say that they had because there had no time had elapsed. And, and, that, and that that whole establishment got into lockstep with each other, with most of the mainstream media, Calling people covidiots and granny killers for not for being for not wanting to take something that I never felt I needed in the first place, and I still don't think I need. And now, of course, 
that you know that that recent revelation, you know, that, that Pfizer had to had spoke up a director in in the European Union in a hearing, admitted that they hadn't even tested to see if the the product would stop the transmission of the virus from person to person, which meant that we'd been being lied to. It wasn't just hubris for 18 months. It wasn't just people hoping for the best. These people who were saying, it'll stop you it'll stop you killing granny. You don't take it for you, you take it for your community. That was a lie. And, and when you realise that you've been lied to in such a barefaced way about something that's directly about your health, something that now demonstrably could injure or kill you, that we were being lied to about those products. Well, in answer to your question, that was that that was and remains uh, the most shocking revelation to me. That agencies that I had assumed all my life had my best interests at heart absolutely didn't. And there was the UK Health, which sucking and blowing it at one point was saying safe and effective for pregnant women and, and breastfeeding women, and at the same and time, still, yes, they're still doing it. The point, all this has come out. All this information is out there. I mean, I don't even bother to quote figures, for, you know, because I don't know, I don't know which figures to rely upon. But let's say that it's beyond doubt that people are being injured and killed by these products. I don't know how many, but people are being injured and killed. And traditionally, where a product is brought forward that kills 10, 20, 30 people, that product's withdrawn for a rethink. But they're, they're still out there saying, you know, come now, get your flu vaccine combined with the next COVID booster. Uh, let's give it to children. Let's give it to babies. Let's give it to pregnant women. I I look on at that and think that that is that is abhorrent and immoral. Yeah, and and now, but but Neil, this is the this is the question: the the black pill and potentially seeing things that are not there, or maybe refusing to accept that they are there. What else can a rational person attribute this to? Because that you know the old expression: don't attribute to malice what you can attribute to negligence. At this stage, and now you got the CDC in, in America voting 15 to 0 to add this to the list of, of kid, uh, you know, the, the, whatever the list is for vaccines for kids. Knowing this, I mean, there are people out there, you know, talking about, call it a conspiracy theory or, or black-pilled individuals saying they've come to the conclusion it's, it's overt malice population control, whatever. Uh, without jumping there, what does a reasonable, rational person with an understanding of history attribute this to? I really don't know. I haven't I haven't come to a conclusion about that which you are describing there. I've heard all the same stuff and I'm just I I, I remain as to whether there's intent, you know, actual 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 intent to harm. I'm 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 holding back I'm I'm holding back at the moment because I think it's enough. It's a strong enough case to know that uh, we were being lied to, that here was something that will stop you passing it to the community. And it's, and it's, it's a hundred percent safe and effective and it will stop you passing it. That that was based on nothing and that the people seeing it were therefore lying. That's enough for me. It doesn't. That that that's enough for me to demand root and branch investigation, charges and and criminal uh, cases for malfeasance and malpractice and and all of the rest of it. I, for me, I, at the moment, I don't need to to go the next step. 
in, into you know into thinking that people have done this out of a out of an intention to harm. But I but I just remain on on the fence about that because I've been so shocked and the whole experience has been so revelatory that you know to to coin a cliche nothing would surprise me. As to as to why I think it's as to why I think it's happening, I I, I do think I do now subscribe to the to the belief that there is and has been for a long time an intention to uh, to establish a, a centralised one world government. Uh, to 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 dissolve uh, uh, national boundaries, uh, you, you know, to, you know, to, you know, to, to take away the notion of of independent states and independent nations, uh, a homogenous uh, population. I, I believe, to some extent, that there's an intention to re-establish a kind of a, a feudalism, a neo-feudalism. Uh, this this uh, narrative from that's been there for a long time from the World Economic Forum about you know uh, you know you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. Uh, I think that's I think that intention is there. Uh, the desire to uh, to remove uh, the freedom to transact for me, freedom to transact. I've realised over the last eighteen months, freedom to transact for me trumps freedom of speech. For me, if you can't uh, buy and sell anonymously, if you wish. Uh, without the you know without the state tracking in real time what you're buying, where you're buying, why you're buying it, if you don't have that freedom to transact, then you've got nothing. You know, and so the the, the even the threat, and but I think it's more than a threat of central bank digital currencies that makes my blood run cold, uh, because I, th- I think it's all part of a piece of 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 an elite, a small group who are seeking to establish. Total control over the mass of the population, uh, and, I, and I think I think that via in the after once COVID was up and running, that was that was the I believe that that was the intent behind the COVID passports, you know, and, in, and encouraging people to put themselves onto some kind of global international database uh, that, that would have enabled the state. Uh, potentially to track your movements, I, I, I think that that intention is there. So when you ask, when you say, why do you, why do I think it's happening? I think a, a blue touch paper has been lit by a group who are intent in the short term to establish total control over the mass of the population. But I think they're really going to do it via things financial rather than things viral. Um, this is one of those moments where like we've evolved in real time, almost, you know, in tandem together. And I know that I, two years ago, I would have said, oh, this sounds over the top. And even now I'm struggling because I say it sounds over the top. Uh, Have you ever seen the movie Idiocracy? No. Oh, Neil, you must see it tonight. It's a, it's a (laughs) classic. I mean, it's a comedy, but it's more of a documentary disguised as a comedy, but like, it would have, I would have said this is one step too far two years ago, three years ago. And now yeah. I, I just, you, you can't deny it. Uh, digital currency, cutting you off, cutting your ability to, to, to survive off if you say things that run counter to the narrative. I've already seen it. You saw it in Canada with the truckers. I mean, I thought it seems like so long ago now, the truckers. I thought the truckers were going to be the, were going to be the, the, were going to make the difference. I thought this in Canada is going to put these, these uh, 
authoritarian politicians back in their box. And but it was it was by financial, it was by taking control of of people's bank accounts that that was throttled. And and so that the the, the uh, what government having seen the potential of cutting people off from their from their ability to transact isn't going to leap on that with both feet and both hands and grab it and having taken hold of it, never let it go. If you can control what people, where people go, what they buy uh, in real time, what, what the sort of people that are motivated by power, why would they not go for that? If you want power, you know, some is good, more is better and too much is just right. <laughs> I've never heard that, and I kind of I love it, but I I hate that I love it. And and now that you say it out loud, Neil, the Justin Trudeau is you know on the he's he's in the WEF poster child. Christian mm-hmm. Freeland is on the board of trustees. There were people saying that the only reason Trudeau invoked the Emergencies Act, brought in a militarized police, busted heads, was to freeze bank accounts mm-hmm. to show. And 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 you say it out loud. I don't know how else to see it. Because the freezing of the bank accounts in the context of suppressing that protest was so superfluous, so over the top, that yeah. it, there's no other sense to make of it. And, the, you know, and, I mean, most people don't know about the existence of far less the reach of the Bank for International Settlements. You know, the, 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 the 60-odd central banks around the world uh, – are are enthralled to the Bank for International Settlement. They they take their they take their instruction to some ex, to a greater or lesser extent from the Bank for International Settlements, which sits in a glass tower in in Basel in in Switzerland. And the the director of the Bank for International Settlements is on the record lamenting the fact that when somebody uses a hundred dollar bill, the bank doesn't know what they've done. They don't know what they've bought. Whereas with a programmable digital currency, the bank would know absolutely what that person has just bought. They don't. The Bank for International Settlement wants to be in a position where it can track in real time every transaction. And once you open that door, I mean, obviously that means that if you're someone who says something that the authority doesn't approve of in the manner of the Chinese Communist Party, you know, social credit system. Then they stop you paying your mortgage. Like that. They just they just cut off your access to, to, to the supply of liquidity. And the and the Bank for International Settlement controls the flow of 95% of the of the of the world's currency in this way. You know, and the central banks that are signed up to it, that are affiliated to it, you know, include the Bank of England. Uh, the the you know the, the central bank of China, the central bank of Russia, even banks from f- failed states like Afghanistan are are under the are under the thrall of the Bank for International Settlements. And and the, the and the director of the Bank for International Settlements said it would be better if if they could see what people were doing with their money at all times. <laughs> why? There's no happy answer for why a bank wants to track everyone's every transaction in real time. Well, they'll they'll only argue that it's to track criminality, and then and then the problem is when wrong speak becomes criminality, when wrong Who's, diet becomes. Yeah, criminality. that's all. That's all very well if you're un, if you're under a, an authority that's benign, but you know once that power's in the hands of of an of, a, of an authority that is less than benign, 
who who says what's criminal? Who says Crim- what's bad? Who says what's bad behavior? You think you've got an idea about what bad behavior is? You've got you've got an idea about what you think it'd be reasonable to protest about? You've got an idea about you know if something is done to you, you might want to speak out about it. But what if somebody with a bigger stick than you says, "I don't want you saying that," and they don't need a stick anymore because they just stop you paying for food? It's um, I'd say who, who's 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 deciding? I, the criminals and, are deciding you know, the you're, crimes. You're quite, but I mean, the the, the point is, you you, I, I spent most of my life like everybody else, uh, hearing about conspiracy theories. And to be a, I mean, to accuse somebody of being a conspiracy theorist was always and has only ever been a pejorative. You know, you don't say that about somebody that you like. It's just another stick to beat people with. And I was, just, I spent the longest time writing things off as conspiracy theory. But but lo and behold, you, eventually a sequence of events unfolds in a certain way where you think, well. I've ruled out that as an explanation. I've ruled out that. I've ruled out that. I've ruled out that as an explanation. I'm running out of explanations for what this is all about. So eventually there comes a point where you have no option but to think the unthinkable and to say the unsayable. And in any event, things that sounded like conspiracy theories two years ago have come to pass anyway. So the precedent is there for that which had been dismissed or dismissible as a conspiracy theory it turns out to have been a prognostication, a, a prediction of the future. It's um, you're you're familiar with Operation Northwoods, I imagine. The uh, no, this is a, a Neil. Google this after you'll it'll blow your mind. But this is back <laughs> in JFK's era, where it was the Department of Defense floating an idea, running it up the the, the hierarchy of the U.S. government to bomb planes. Uh, carry out mass shootings in public, blame it. I think it was to blame it on Cuba so they could justify a war on Cuba uh, to turn public sentiment uh, to support the war on Cuba. It involved terrorism on American citizens. Uh, JFK shouted it down, voted it down, but it had reached the higher levels of government. And then a year and a half later, JFK is assassinated. And what they had talked about in Operation Northwoods as as potential things, it, it, it... rhymed exactly with 9-11, which is why now in retrospect, when I heard people in 9-11 saying this is inside job, whatever, who then knew things that I didn't know, but I know now, whether or not they're right, I can at the very least understand what they were thinking at the time and can't exactly write it off as conspiracy theory. No. Um, you, need, you just need, ra- you need rational skepticism. That's really been I mean, my, my takeaway from all of this. Like, you know, my, my, my middle ground, you know, that, with which I, you know, where, where I, Kind of try to stand. I, I, I just requ- I just feel entitled to rational skepticism. So whatever anyone tells me from from any side, where things I used to just whatever accept or dismiss out of hand, I don't do that for either now. Things I used to dismiss as that can't be true. I go and have a think and a bit of a look, and I read around it and I see what I can find out. And likewise, when the government or anybody else says this is. You know, we're from the government. We're here to help. Where in the past, I might just have accepted that. I don't do that either anymore. I've just become a skeptic, just a rational, reasonable skeptic, which, to be quite honest, I think is where everyone should be 100% of the time anyway. We're not children. You have to take responsibility for your own destiny. And that means that you might not want to do the homework. You might not want to have to go away and do the reading for yourself. But really, that's where we are. Now, just uh, go and do the reading for yourself. 
people in the in the chat in the stream like uh, they want a white they want inspiration i think we've all taken the red pill the question is preventing people from taking the black pill and you know some people say this is following the same path as the fall of rome i don't i was trying to find an audiobook to understand the fall of rome a little bit better but do, do you see i mean I, not not to be predictive and not to give people false hope how do you see this playing out in the coming years? Is this the fall of, of, of the free Western civilization and we're all going the way of China? Is it the fall of an empire being the West? Or will, you know, do, you, do you hope, foresee, and, and wish for an awakening and the people taking back the power? I think it's unrealistic to imagine, you know, 100% a, a, a of, of, of the sleepers awakening. I don't. I don't think that's going to happen. But also, furthermore, I don't think it's necessary. I think uh, the the forces of <laughs> the forces of evil, the baddies, can be held in check by just a few. If you wanted to put it in percentage terms, I don't know. Maybe it's ten percent. Maybe it's fifteen percent. But it, in relative terms, it, it's a it's a fraction. And I think that is realistic. I sense, I sense all around me, people quietly, or, or maybe with some with more volume than others, people asking questions uh, and asking the right questions. And I think that 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 um, the the attempt to, at, at authoritarianism and totalitarianism is running full steam. I think that bid for control is is happening. But there's also an extent to which if if that amount of people, if 15% of people are just aware and point the finger and say, we see you and we know what you're about, I think there's every possibility of stopping them in their tracks. I think we do, I think perhaps what has been the West, uh, I think maybe there has been a decadence and a taking for granted uh, that that m many of us have been guilty of. I think we're enough generations away from those that spilt blood to secure freedom and to turn back tyranny that we've learned to be contemptuous of that, uh, to take it for granted and to believe that the life that's been possible here in the West is somehow in the natural order of things. And of course it's not. You've only got to look at the wider world to see the natural order of things. With a few honourable exceptions, most of the world is in the grip of uh, bandits, tyrants, thieves and crooks. Uh, our, our life in a, in a handful of countries, really, where we've had equality before the law, uh, the, the, the right to, to, to pursue uh, you know, a, a life shaped by ourselves, uh, and, and those those protections, it's been a a, a a soap bubble of of almost unquantifiable fragility, and we have we have taken it for granted and been rough with it when we should have been cradling it in our hands and passing it very carefully from generation to generation. I, 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 but I think what has happened in the last couple of years has been a necessary wake up. It's been a necessary glass of cold water slap of the face, waking up. And I believe that there is still everything to play for. I mean, you know, you say and you're right, you don't want to give people false hope. But 
right wins. Right is unsuppressible. Like the grass, you can pour concrete over grass, but after a while, the grass will find a way back through the concrete. Right is irrepressible. I wouldn't necessarily put a time scale on how long I think it will take for our side to win the argument and the battle. So I don't know whether it's today or tomorrow or next year or 10 years. It, it might be a long struggle, but I believe in my heart, and I, I say this with my hand on my heart, that right will prevail because right wins. It's perpetually challenged by wrong in the same way that the light is perpetually challenged by darkness, but every day the sun rises. Right will prevail. May I ask one question? I didn't ask it, and I don't want to be intrusive. Are you a religious man or atheist agnostic, just from perspective? <sighs> I'm as skeptical about organized religion as I am about anything else, but I... Uh, I believe in uh, uh, a transcendent aspect. I believe that there is something out of reach and out of sight, but there nonetheless. And I think it's, you call it logos, call it reason, call it right, call it God, call it whatever you want. But I believe the transcendent is there and that, Consciously or unconsciously, we navigate by it like true north. Um, I don't go to church, but I believe in a transcendent good that I think all of us try or a lot of us try to find our way back to, you know, or, you know like looking for a, a, a light in a, in a fog bank. We can sense it and, we, and a lot of us try to navigate towards it. I don't trouble myself too much with what shape it is or what to call it. I just trust that it's there. That's very, quite, quite beautiful. Uh, and Neil, if I don't ask the question, people in the chat are going to go crazy. What's going on in England right now with the news of the knife? Shortest, <laughs> short, I, I, I'm sort of familiar, but I can't make hay of it. Shortest prime ministership in the history of, uh, of England? Yeah, well, it's, well, back in 2016, Britain voted for Brexit. 52 to 48 to leave the European Union. And I believe in my heart that that absolutely took the authoritarians by surprise. I think they thought they had that one in the bag. I often think, I can't believe they allowed a referendum to happen, but, but maybe they just got to the point where it was the immovable, the unstoppable force against the immovable object. And they just said, okay, let them, let the proles have the referendum, but we can, we can make sure we get the result we want. And I think against all odds and expectations, Britain voted for Brexit. And that was you know, apocalyptic as far as the globalist authoritarian one world order people were concerned. They Cannot believe it. And basically from then, I think there's been an orchestrated attempt to take the United Kingdom down and to take the United Kingdom apart. You know, we can't have this because they cannot have the, the EU fracturing. 
and Britain leaving was just the unthinkable. And so Britain has been being punished ever since. The, the, the political class and the media and the, the institutions of state got into lockstep and collaborated to try and overturn that referendum result. They did everything humanly possible to stop that Brexit being realised. And then, of course, along comes Boris Johnson. Now, whatever people know about or think about Boris Johnson, he was a charismatic figure. And he 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 polarised a debate, but he was able to establish himself as somebody who uh, was pro Brexit. I don't think he ever really was in his heart, but he used Brexit as a as a lever to get to where he wanted to be. And with that in mind, he then secured at the general election in 2019 an 80 seat majority against the odds. Uh, he won votes that had hitherto been Labour, in Labour strongholds. He won this un, unexpected, unprecedented uh, general election. Gave him, he gave this Brexit-driven mandate, this majority. And that was, again, anathema to those that wanted uh, a single European edifice of which Britain was supposed to be an obedient part. And since then, they, they've taken down Boris, Poor old Liz Truss came in uh, promising whatever she was promising and has been taken down. As sure as eggs is eggs, she didn't stand a chance. I don't believe, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll say this loud and say it clear, I don't believe decisions about Britain are taken in Westminster. I think in the Palace of Westminster for a long time, it's been nothing but a pantomime. Uh, you know, and if you've ever been to, you know, pick a pantomime, Cinderella, you know, you know, you get different actors in the different parts, but the story unfolds the same way every time, you know, and it culminates in a happy ending, but it's not a happy ending for you. It's a happy ending for them on stage. And so I, I don't think Liz Trust mattered for, for a while there. She had a, for a few minutes, she had a, a Chancellor of the Exchequer called Quasi Quarteng. They did their budget together. Anyway, they've been, they have been whipped off the stage uh, and now the what has been installed there are one world globalist uh, anti brexit um pro lockdown pro vaccine mandate yours and my worst nightmare are now uh, you know are the, have now been handed the, the starring roles in the latest iteration of the pantomime and it's all a product of what happened in 2016 the, the uppity, upstart British people who voted to reclaim borders, reclaim the, the nation state of Britain, have been put back in their box, or, or so the authoritarians think. All right. I don't, I don't know if that's going to be a, a black pill to end it, but um, okay. I, I, I'm going to have to go make sure I can flesh this out on my own to understand what's going on, but I, I saw the news and had to ask. Neil, first of all, this has been amazing. Uh, where where can people find you? I'll post your links in the pinned comments, but what, what are you up to? Where can people find you? Social? Uh, oh, you're yes. on Patreon? Uh, yes, I have, a, I have a Patreon site. If you go to patreon.com, look for me by name. Uh, I'm there. I have a YouTube channel. I have a channel on YouTube that's just called the Neil Oliver channel. So that's easy enough to find. I'm on Instagram. Uh, I'm on Twitter. I, on, on, on Twitter, I go, but well, you'll find me as Neil Oliver, but I, my handle is The Coast Guy. And uh, yeah, my books are available in all good bookshops. 
<laughs> I'm going to I'm going to put all of the links in in okay. both Rumble and YouTube. And our... a, I'll say for myself, but it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Uh, you know, I'm so glad we, you and I. You know, we, we, we've been sort of floating around this idea of coming together for a chat for a little while now, and finally, finally, we've got together. And I I, I definitely hope that it's just the first of well, more than one conversation that we can have in the. Ab- Absolutely. And, and Neil, yeah, look, I, I don't believe in these numbers things. I just it, Coincidences are coincidences. Uh, I met my wife when she was 17. I was 19. No. Kids, I swear to you, three kids, two dogs. Um, <laughs> there's, 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 I, I just said, like, it's like, other, other than the demeanor. Synchronicity. I'm, I'm, it's, it's, quite, it's quite funny. And I, I, try, I try not to make too much of it, but coincidences are, 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 are awesome. That's to brilliant. That's, um, and, I'm and, so and glad just, you mentioned that. Oh, it's, it's, there's more. I have to remember what they were, but just those were the big ones. Um, and 2009 was the birth of our first kid. But that wait, now I can well, just start stretching. Okay. Uh, Neil, we will definitely do it again. I don't know when I'm going overseas, uh, but if you ever are out here, well, we'll, we'll, we'll stay in touch. In my in my unvaccinated way, I I don't know where I can go at the moment, but I'd rather be I'd rather be here and and untouched than any yeah. other way. So if the accident will, you and I will breathe the same air in the same space someday absolutely now stick around we'll say our proper goodbyes i'll end the stream uh with everybody else i'm gonna do it i said i was gonna put up a video because rumble cuts off short but i i forgot to line it up so whatever neil stick around we'll say our proper goodbyes everyone in the chat thank you very much snip their way and i'll put all of the links to neil everywhere so you can find them including books uh, and documentaries neil thank you very much it's oh thank you brilliant thank you, brilliant. Thank you.